Welcome to the Together for Good podcast brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about parables. Uh, Parables in general, but specifically the parable of the prodigal son. I start off this Bible study by telling you a little bit about how the readings are chosen on Sunday mornings here at Bethany. And then I mention the fact that throughout this fall, we are going to be hearing the parables of Jesus. Week after week, we'll be hearing a different one. But one of the ones we don't ever get to hear this fall is the parable of the prodigal son. So this podcast, it's a Bible study. You get a lot of information about how the reading calendar is set up, about why parables are important. And then we do a deep dive into the parable of the prodigal son, which is one of Jesus's most famous parables that has so much to teach us. So here you go, a Bible study on the prodigal son. All right, friends, a little bit of introduction to start this all off. Part of the way that the scripture passages are chosen on Sunday morning is through a schedule. It's called the Revised Common Lectionary. And it's a three-year calendar that lays out the different readings that churches are supposed to use on Sunday mornings. Or I shouldn't say supposed to use, invited to use. And it's kind of neat because every church, every Lutheran church, follows the Revised Common Lectionary, or at least almost every Lutheran church. And it's also neat because the Catholics also uh, follow something very similar to the Revised Common Lectionary. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Episcopalians... All of us are united in reading the same Bible stories in church every single Sunday. That's one of the neat things about the lectionary. The other neat thing about it is that it gives you a series of readings. And if you were to read the first lesson and the second lesson and the psalm and the gospel every Sunday, over the course of three years, you'd read about 95% of the Bible or thereabouts. But here's why I'm telling you all this. Because the way that the Revised Common Lectionary is laid out, it has sent us into parable season. The fall of this year is going to consist of a whole bunch of different parables from Jesus. That's just how it's laid out. We're reading through the Gospel of Matthew mainly, and Matthew's Gospel contains a lot of parables, and so we're going to be reading a lot of them Sunday after Sunday. Parables are great. There's so much that you can learn from them. Um, I love the ways that parables invite us to ask questions. Jesus doesn't tend to give straightforward answers. He tells a story instead. And I think there's real wisdom in that, in recognizing that it's not always black and white. It's not always clear cut what the answer should be or how we should live out our faith. Jesus wants us to wonder about these things to talk with one another about these questions that we have, to learn and to grow in our understanding of what the life of faith is like. So with all this in mind, since it is parable season, I want to do a Bible study for us. Bible study on a parable. And it's one that's very famous that I'm sure you've likely heard before, but it's one that we're not going to get to hear this fall either in the course of our Sunday morning readings. So, seemed like a good place to start, and there's just so much to this parable that oftentimes we don't even get to cover on the Sunday sermon uh, because we got to keep those sermons kind of short because there's football games on, right? So, the parable that we're talking about today is the parable of the prodigal son. 
And the version of this one that I want to read through is from Luke's gospel, actually. It's in Luke chapter 15, if you wanted to open up and follow along with some of it. Um, But it's interesting how this parable comes about. I'll read for you just the very first couple verses that sort of set the stage for us in terms of what's happening. What, What was the moment that led up to Jesus telling this story? And here's what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them a parable. Now notice what's happening there. You've got tax collectors and sinners, individuals who are kind of looked down upon society at that point in time. And then on the other side, You've got Pharisees and scribes. These are supposed to be the good guys. The Pharisees are very wise and sort of the the teachers of the faith. And and the scribes are the ones who, who write everything down and keep things in order. And it's the Pharisees and the scribes that don't like the ways that Jesus is being welcoming of the tax collectors and the sinners. And so what happens next is Jesus tells two parables, actually. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Have you heard that one before about the man who had 99 sheep or 100 sheep and he loses one? So he leaves the 99 behind to go find that one lost sheep. And then Jesus follows that up by telling another parable, a parable about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one. But then she flips over her house and looks everywhere until she can find that lost coin. And when she does, she throws a party for the whole town. And then the final parable Jesus tells is the parable of the prodigal son. But look at what happened there. Jesus noticed that the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling about the way that he was welcoming tax collectors and sinners. And so rather than call the Pharisees and scribes out and say like, hey, you guys don't get it. This is the whole point. Instead, he tells a couple stories. And his hope, I'm guessing, was to try and allow those Pharisees and scribes to to move along and expand their understanding. For those Pharisees and scribes to think about this man who lost one of his hundred sheep and, and how he would go to great lengths to bring that one back in. Jesus is showing them that God feels the same way. God is so grateful for the Pharisees and the scribes and all the work that they do for the synagogue in their town. But God cares even more about those who have not yet been brought into the religious community. Those tax collectors and sinners who seem like they're wandering and lost. And so God's going to do everything in God's power to bring those individuals into the fold. With all this in mind, it really helps us think carefully about the parable of the prodigal son. Because while the parable of the sheep and the parable of the lost coin are short and condensed, the parable of the prodigal son is long. It takes up the whole second half of chapter 15 in Luke. And there's some very interesting details that are included in that parable. So let's uh, get right to it, shall we? couple of pieces that I want you to see. The, the parable of the prodigal son starts at verse 11. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. And it starts by this moment. Jesus said, 
there was a man who had two sons. Notice here that the way that the scriptures describe it is it is a man with two sons. The two individuals are described about their relationship to the father, not their relationship to one another. It doesn't say that there were two brothers. And that's an important point for how Jesus sets the stage at the beginning of this parable. Because later on, we're going to find out that the older brother and the younger brother are not going to see eye to eye on some of these things. In fact, the older brother is going to be pretty upset by everything that's happening. And so the parable starts off by Jesus foreshadowing that reality later. There was a man who had two sons. The importance is about their relationship to the father, not their relationship with one another. Okay, but then moving on, verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. And so the father divided his property between them. Now, the youngest son is the individual. The youngest son is the individual who, who would receive one third of the inheritance. The younger son didn't get as much as the older son. So it doesn't say that this was divided in half. The younger son is just getting his small portion of what's there. But what's also interesting is that by asking his father for his inheritance, the younger son is basically saying, Hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. After all, inheritance was always given after the individual had died. And it would have been incredibly shameful, incredibly scandalous for a younger son to go and dishonor his father in such a way by asking for his inheritance early. So there's some interesting details just in this whole moment. And and we have to remember that while Jesus was telling this story, that everyone listening would have understood it. They would have been shocked by this description of a a younger son asking his father for his inheritance before the father had died. And yet, the father willingly did this, didn't he? He divided it between them and gave the younger son one-third of the inheritance that was entitled to him. Now moving on to 13. A few days later, that younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now, I do want to point out and give the younger son at least a little bit of credit. What is often assumed is that the younger son spent all his money on prostitutes. But all that it tells us in verse 13 is that he spent his money on dissolute living. Later on, it's going to be the older brother that says, this son of yours, father, spent all his money on prostitutes. But that might just be an exaggeration by the older son, who, as we'll see, was pretty upset about things. I'm not going to say that the younger son was necessarily doing a good job with his finances, but it also doesn't outright say that he was overtly sinful in the way that he spent his money. He just wasn't very responsible. And so he spends his money in desolute living, squandered the property, and we get to verse 14 where it says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. Notice that ultimately what puts the younger son in a difficult place is this famine. It was something completely outside his control. 
Sure, he wasn't responsible with the money he received from his father originally, but he didn't become to be in need until this famine swept across the land. And so again, while the older brother later on is going to lob all sorts of allegations against his younger brother, the truth is much of the difficult situation that the younger son found himself in was outside of his control. So we move on to verse 15 here. So the younger son went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now, the younger son also doesn't immediately go running back to daddy the moment that things get difficult. He tries to turn this situation around for himself, and he tries in such a way that's deeply shameful. Pigs were considered unclean, are still considered to this day to be unclean animals within Judaism. As you likely know, um, practicing Jews will not eat any sort of pork product. And so for the younger son to hire himself out and work with the pigs, this lets you see that he picked the worst job possible. It was probably the only one available to him, and yet he was willing to work amongst the pigs in order to hopefully provide for himself. Once again, I'm making this point multiple times, but we need to give the younger son a little bit more credit. It's not just that he squandered all the money and then came running home. No, he was not responsible in his spending. A famine took place that he could have never predicted would happen. And so then in response, he took the least desirable job out there in hopes of being able to provide for himself. But we read in verse 16, the younger son would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. And then we keep going to verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. And so the younger son comes to this realization when he's in the, the worst moment and, and just longing to eat what the pigs eat. He says to himself, Well, wait a second. My father treats his workers much better than this. The younger son has taken the worst job imaginable, and it's not providing for him at all. And so he thinks to himself, I could just go and work for my father because I know that he at least treats his employees better than the situation I'm in. Keep in mind, the younger son never had any intention of being welcomed back. He, again, was just trying to take any step possible in order to be able to provide for himself and finally he decides to turn and go home to see if he can't get a job for dad, with dad. And so in verse 18, we read, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but treat me like one of your hired hands. And so this is what the younger son does. He turns and heads towards home. And even anticipates not being welcomed back as a son, as a member of the family, realizing the way that he has already cut himself off from that family. But he still heads home in hopes of being a hired hand. And so this is the turning point. Verse 20, where the truly radical understanding of God's grace and welcome and acceptance, this idea of God seeking and welcoming back the lost 
that we saw in the previous two parables of the sheep and the lost coin. We see it again now here in verse 20. So the son set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. His father ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Now, the son hadn't even made it all the way home. You get the idea that the father must have been just looking out his window every day, hoping to catch a glimpse of his younger son returning home. What a beautiful picture of the way that God sees us. That even when we make mistakes, even when we willingly separate ourselves from God and turn our backs on God like the younger son did, God is waiting at the window, looking, longing for us to turn towards home. And while he was still far off, the scripture says, the father saw him and ran out to greet him. Now, apparently in some Arabic translations of this parable, they choose not to include this detail of the father running out to greet the son. Because the idea of a father, of a patriarch figure running is incredibly scandalous. Uh, The patriarch of the family never runs or hurries for any reason. And so they leave that detail out, but it, it stays here within our English translations and we just gloss over it. We don't recognize that for a father to be running out to his son shows just the incredible lengths that the father will go in order to be reunited with his child. And again, this is part of the beauty that Jesus is trying for us all to see, to, to bring us all to see. That God will go to any length to welcome us back. God wants nothing more than for us to turn towards home so that God can then run out and reach out to greet us and bring us back. And so we keep reading. Then the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. The younger son had been rehearsing this line the whole way home. We see it that he said to himself that he would go and and say to his father, you know, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's practicing that line in verse 18. And then in verse 21, he starts to say that line that he'd rehearsed, right? In verse 21, he starts to say, Father, I've sinned against you and before you. And the father interrupts him. It says like, nope. Quickly bring out a robe, put a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. A robe was a festival garment. A ring is a symbol of authority. Sandals were something not worn by slaves. Sandals were usually worn by members of the family because slaves would go barefoot. So each of these little details, the robe and the ring and the sandals, are the father restoring the son to his place within the family. The son is welcomed back and he is a full member once again 
of this family. And then the fatted calf is killed as a luxury, a celebration. Um, eating that much meat is something that you wouldn't normally do on a nightly basis. To kill a whole fatted calf meant that you were planning to have a party that lasted a long time because you wouldn't want to waste all that meat. It would spoil pretty quickly. So the father is expecting the entire village to come out and join in this celebration. All of this is showing us that the son has been fully restored to his place. And yet what's also brilliant about Jesus's parable here is the truth is the son is going to no longer have an inheritance. His place within the family has been restored, but there still is consequence for the actions that he's taken. And of course, we know this to be true in our lives as well, is that sin, those ways that we turn our backs on God's will and hope for our life, that often does come with consequences. And while God will forgive us again and again and again and welcome us back and set us on a right pathway, oftentimes the relationship that's been destroyed because of our sinfulness, that can oftentimes be lost forever. Or you can think of any other number of examples. Jesus's parable here shows us that God's always willing to forgive us and welcome us back but it also carries this undercurrent of acknowledging the fact that our sin does have consequence. Just as the younger son's actions have a consequence. And so now we get into the second part of the parable, right? The, the parable could stop there and it would be one of Jesus's best ones, one of his greatest hits. But what comes next is really important, especially given the context that we've already talked about. I'll remind you that Jesus is telling this story because of the way that the chief priests or the way that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling about how Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So you've got these Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling about how welcoming and generous and gracious Jesus is being. And then we hear about the older brother and the way that he reacts to seeing his younger brother welcomed back into the family. And so in verse 25 is where this section begins. Now, the father's elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called on one of the slaves and asked, what's going on? And the slave replied, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. So I want to stop there, those first couple verses. It's the music and the dancing that seem to be really offensive to the son. Judaism and Christianity have clear provisions for the restoration of the penitent returnee, but where does it say that such provisions should include a banquet and music and dancing? You see, the younger or the older brother just doesn't think that this level of festivity is appropriate. And keep in mind also, what was the older brother doing? He was out in the fields working. 
And so I'm sure that that's part of his offense to all this. He, he's working all day. He hasn't even heard about what's going on yet or why this party's happening. He's just catching wind of it. And it must have struck him as so offensive. Here these people are dancing and singing while he's out in the field continuing to work for his father. And of course, the father goes out to see the older son. Not only does the father run out to greet the younger son along the road, but the father also goes out to check on his older son, to invite him into the party. But as we read, the older son refuses to go in. You see, part of the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees and the scribes here is that they're missing out on the party. Yeah, Pharisees and scribes, you can grumble about the way that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, or you can join in the meal and the, the, the beauty of this moment as well. So often we get so caught up in making sure that our religion functions our way. We want to see things done the right way, the way that it's always been done, the way that my father did it when we were growing up. And we get so focused and, and make our churches just these shrines to the past. We, we turn our churches into these places where everything has to be done the right way. But when we do that, we're missing out on the party. <laughs> God wants everyone to be welcomed in. God knows that the party is so much more interesting and diverse and vibrant when everybody gets to be a part of it. And so the Pharisees and the scribes are missing out. The older son is missing out. And what is true, what remains true today, is that God the Father will go out to try and welcome those individuals into the party. The invitation is still there. It's not as if those people are cut off themselves from the celebration. They're invited in, but it's up to them to accept the invitation. The older son, of course, doesn't accept the invitation. We read in verse 28, he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice that the younger son is all focused on his work. He's always followed the rules. He's always done it the right way. He's very much so caught up in his own ego. While I'm sure the father greatly appreciates the faithfulness of his older son, the older son is so focused on doing everything the right way that he's missing out on the party. Doesn't that happen with our faith as well sometimes? We become so focused on the right way to pray, the right way to worship, the right way to practice our faith, that we then miss out on the party. We get so full of our ego. Yes, I can say the Lord's Prayer without having to read it from the bulletin. Look at me. Yes, I put money in the offering plate every week. And we turn our noses up at those people who stumble over the words or who maybe don't give as much as us. But Jesus is saying with this parable, yeah, that's not really the point. If this is all about your own ego, then you're going to miss the party. And so we read in verse 30, 
the older son continues. He says, But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Notice again, it's the older son who makes the allegation that the younger son squandered his money, his squandered the father's property with prostitutes. But again, how would the older son know that? <laughs> the older son just knows that his younger son had gone off. He hasn't even seen his brother yet. And also notice the way that the older son talks. When this son of yours came back, he claims no ownership or connection to his brother. Our ego can do this to us. We can become so focused on doing things right and how that makes us better than other people that it ruins our relationship with other people. We don't even see them as our brothers or sisters, our siblings in Christ. We just see them as inferior people who can't live out their faith like us. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to critique. The Pharisees and the scribes don't see the tax collector and sinners as their siblings. The Pharisees and the scribes are so full of themselves and always doing things the right way in the temple and in the synagogue that they have missed the connection that they share with the tax collectors and the sinners. And notice that the father tries to bring the son, older son back. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, the father's reminding the son of his connection to the brother. So this is, as you can see, such a robust, <laughs> rich parable with so many layers and connections. And it's just so relevant to our life today. I think as we listen to this story, we need to think carefully about how we understand our relationship with others. Are we often so caught up in our own ego and doing things the right way that we're missing out on the party? Are we so caught up in our own ego and doing things the right way that we're missing out on the unity and the relationship we have with other people? The Pharisees and the scribes, the tax collectors and the sinners, all have a place in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. And we can often end up grumbling and <laughs> stuck in our own ways and totally oblivious to the ways that grace is extended to all of us. I hope uh, that this has been at least an interesting little uh, ride through this passage. It's one of my favorites. I'm really glad to be able to share this uh, Bible study with you. Feel free to reach out if you've got any further questions or comments. Thanks so much for listening. Stay in peace.